This is our seventh study through the book of 1 John. And the thing is, we could have spent a year in this book (laughs) or more. Every time I look at the section that I picked out, I'm like, I could have taught just this verse or just these three or four verses. So uh, we're going to continue our brisk pace. We're going to finish chapter four tonight, and then we're going to take two weeks to go through chapter five, and then we will be done. Uh, So that's that's pretty cool. But um, it's you really could take as much time as you like. So uh, mark passages as we go through, you know, mark it and say, I'm going to come back and do that for my devotion tomorrow or pray it through or think it through. So uh, much of the book has been focused on defining the differences between those who are of God and those who are not. And uses a bunch of different terms to describe that as those who know God and those who do not, those who have been born of God and those who have not. Uh, drawing a, a contrast and a distinction, he's talking about moral issues, right? People who are of God don't do things like this, but the people who are not of God do them. Or spiritual differences, right? The antichrists and then the ones who have the spirit. Doctrinal differences, we looked at that last week a little bit, uh, the, the doctrine of Christ specifically. And he's been given very strong calls to maintain that distinction. And The whole book, it's not a tone of judgment. It's not a tone of rebuke, right? He's not coming at them and saying, you need to do better. But he's trying to say, hey, this is who we are, guys. So let's just accept it and revel in it and run with it. And giving a lot of uh, passages of assurance. Because he'll go through like a long chapter of of, uh, calling out these guys who are antichrists, as he called them. But then he'll say, but listen, guys, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about those who are apart from the Lord. This is who we are. So let's maintain that. And one of the most persistent themes, not only of the first John, of, but of all the letters of John, the gospel of John, and even into the book of Revelation, is love. John talks a lot about love. In the gospel of John, he describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus, what? Loved. That was how he understood himself in that story. And tonight, we're going to hit that subject again. And in, in the, the structure of first John, he's saying the defining characteristic of those who belong to God is love. It's foundational to how we understand God, to how we understand the gospel. And he's going to say multiple times in this section today, it should be the basis of our interactions with each other as well. And this section is going to focus more on the love of God and how the, God's love influences us less than how uh, we ought to practically love each other. So there won't be as much of that tonight. Uh, we've sort of hit it pretty hard in a couple different weeks. So uh We're just going to be looking at, okay, this is what we're supposed to do, but why? And he's going to go through what God has done for us and how that should affect our relationship to God. And the title, if you like titles tonight, it all comes back to love. I gave that title because I was was going through the outline and getting it ready and going, oh, it all comes back to love, doesn't it? I'm like, there it is. That's my title. So that's, I'm very proud of that. So you can write that down if you like. But he's going to say tonight, it's not fear It's not fear of retribution. It's love. God loves you, and that drives us to love other people. So don't ever forget that. And uh, these first couple verses, verses 7 and 8, which is where we're going to start tonight. I used to sing them when I was a little kid in in school. Not school, in Sunday school. I don't know if you remember it or not, but uh, he just uses the word love over and over and over and over again. So that's really what it is. It all comes back to love. Let's start with verse 7 and 8, and we'll begin. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So what he's doing now, he's circling back to what he'd been talking about in chapter 3. In chapter 3, verses 11 through 24, he's talking about loving your brother, and at the end or the beginning of chapter four, he took a little detour to talk about the spirit uh, because he had mentioned that we have the spirit because uh, that's how we know that God abides with us. And he says, and you know what? Speaking of spirits, don't trust every single one. That's kind of last week. And so now he's bringing it back. So, okay, so I was talking about love. Let us love one another. Remember, John is a very old man, so it's hard to keep him on track uh, when he's writing. So the distinction between those who know God and those who do not know God is love. Remember, Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Now, being born again, as Jesus explained to Nicodemus, is not a physical thing, right? You're not being literally reborn, but spiritually reborn. Now, you can't see that. So how do you know if you've been born again? And he tells us that being born again leads to love. God is love, so if you have been born of God, you will also love. Now, this is kind of a, I could see as a controversial thing, and I've heard this uh, lobbed at Christians before, because he says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, because love is from God. So he's saying, if you are living a lifestyle of true love, that's because you know God. Love can only come from God, and we know that in John John's uh, language here, he's not just saying any God, but the true and living God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the triune God. And people can resent it when you say, oh, so you're saying that if I'm not a Christian, I can't love anybody? Now, that is not what we're saying, right? Because all of us are made in the image of God, so your capacity and your ability to love comes from God. But, but, People want to say, no, everybody believes in love. Every religion teaches love. That is not true, by the way. Do just a little bit of reading and find that out. It's actually really funny because when people, I'm going to go on a rabbit trail now, speaking of what John did, but when people talk about all the things that every religion teaches, they then go on to describe things that are very distinctly Christian. (laughs) Every religion talks about faith. Every religion talks about love. Every religion tells you to love your neighbor. No, they don't. (laughs) That's what Jesus said. Every religion has the golden rule. No, Jesus has the golden rule. It's just really strange to me that that we do that. Even the fact that we refer to different faiths. Well, what faith do you belong to? Christianity are the ones that make a big deal out of faith, right? We're the ones that say you have to believe and trust and have faith in the Lord, and salvation comes by grace through faith. So when you talk about things that are that are Christian, that are from God, people say, no, I don't need God to have that, right? The world can't keep its mouth shut about love. And they'll come at Christians, oh, you say love, but you don't really love. And they hold up some definition of what love is that is not what God taught us. So it's not a matter of, can you have any kind of love from God, except from God? Well, first of all, you got it from God anyway. It's God's image in you. It's as Solomon said, eternity has been written on your heart. But it's a difference of quality. What kind of love is this? You remember Luke chapter 6, verses 32 through 35. Uh, Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. That's the kind of love we're talking about. The love of man is self-serving. And and all I really need to demonstrate that is there's a large number of people who tell that the greatest kind of love is the love that you have for yourself. You can't love other people until you love yourself. Is that not the most self-serving thing in the entire world? You need to learn to love yourself. 99,000 times out of 100,000. The answer is, uh, I think you love yourself a little too much and you need to stop thinking about yourself so much because you're miserable because you're obsessed with taking care of you and what you want. The love of man is self-serving. We define love in a way that works for us. My mom and dad don't love me because they don't approve of all the stupid things I'm doing. I can't love you because you have done X, Y, and Z. We define it according to what we want. But the love of God is entirely selfless. God gained nothing by his love for you. Do you understand that? God had nothing to gain from demonstrating love towards you. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, God was 100% within his rights to wipe them out of existence forever. But he didn't because he loved them. God was under no compulsion to send his son to die on the cross, but he did out of love. That's true love. And John says it here, and he's going to say it again in verse 16. God is love. Now, some people want to put this backwards and say love is God. 
Anytime you love somebody, God is there. And then they wanted to find love in their own way, so therefore God approves of whatever I want to do. No, God is love. God's character is the character of love. That is who he has shown himself to be repeatedly. So, you know, it's not that we are worshipers of love. You know, like Aphrodite was the goddess of love. That's not who God is. God has demonstrated that the way he acts towards people is loving. So what John says is anybody who says, I know God and God is love, but I live a life of hostility and condemnation towards other people. It's like, you don't know God. I don't care what your church going credentials are. I don't care what your tax deduction is from all the money you give to the church. I don't care how many sins you abstain from. I don't care, blah, 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 blah. If you don't love people, you don't know God. It's really funny how you can get really crabby people who don't like anybody, and they're just always mad and got to be in their bonnet about something, and they're going to say that they know God and they're very religious. Like, you don't know God. If you knew God, you would love people. Well, I do love people. Like, you, don't, you can't just say that you love people. You've got to live it out, right? It's, it's got to be a difference. And you look at how Jesus treated people. You know, Jesus made un people uncomfortable with how much he loved them. It's like, Jesus, that's a sinner. Jesus, that's a tax collector. Jesus, that's a Roman. What are you doing? He's like, I came to love people. So if you say, say that you know God and you love God and you're going to come to church and sing about the love of God, but the minute you start talking to other people, you get really grumpy and angry. <laughs> Can I tell a funny story? This, I'm sure this man is a brother in the Lord, so I don't know him or his name, so it's okay. But my dad and I were at, I was a kid, so this was a Sonic Flood concert. I don't know if you even know who that band is, some of you. Uh, but we were at King's Dominion, and they were, they were like this kind of amped up worship type band, and they were playing worship songs, and out in the sun, it was a really fun time, and everybody's had their hands up, worshiping and singing, and there's this guy in front of us, eyes closed, arms lifted up to heaven. He's got two little kids next to him, like, you know, six and seven, and they're squabbling and fighting and making noise and stuff, and what during worship, right? He leans over and he goes, and he's barking at these kids and like, you sit out and you sit out. And then as soon as he finished, he closed his eyes, arms go back up in the air, like you're interrupting my worship, children. And it was the my dad and I just cracked up looking at this. So you've got to be kidding me, man. You are keeping me from worshiping the Lord, you bad kids. He didn't actually hit them, but you know, we were in public, so who knows. But it's, it, that's the, the contrast that we laugh at, but we can make it look really religious. And it's like, oh, you know what they're doing. You know what she does. You know what he does. You know what he posted online. And you're just going to talk to them like it's no big deal. Like, I'm going to go and love them. How's that? Loving people. Loving people who make you uncomfortable. Loving your enemies. So to know God is to know love. Right? Those who don't love other people, they have not been born of God. Right, So John's like, you have to be born again to be saved. How do I know if I've been born again? Do you love people? Because God is love. And anybody who has been affected by the person of God will love people. So moving on to verse 9, he says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. So what does it mean to make something manifest? Was revealed or it was seen, it was manifested to us. Right, In this... The love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. All of this, remember, from the very beginning, he's going he's gonna to go off and not focus so much on the instruction to love one another, but on the motivation behind it, right? Knowing God that leads to love. So framed by that commandment to love other people, that God's character is love. He's like, and I'm not just saying that God is love. This is how we saw the love of God lived out. That God's actions match up with his heart. Because the love of God is not just some theory. And by the way, if you're going to come up with like an ontological theory of who God is, you're not going to get to love. You can come up with just. You can come up with, you know, strict because that's how nature is, right? If you're going to count natural theology, right? That nature is harsh and uncompromising. That's how God is. And you know what? God is like that. Yes, he is. But God is also love. Well, how do you know that? Well, 
the person of Jesus Christ. John's been saying it was manifest among us. The very first words of this book, he's saying that which was from the beginning, which we have seen and heard. He's like, guys, I saw him. I know Jesus. The love of God was manifested in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We looked at this last week, right? How the, the center of our doctrine is Jesus. That's everything to us, is the person of Jesus Christ. And the minute you start to put Jesus on the shelf and say, yes, he is part of it, but it's really about, no, you can't do that. You can't even make it about the teachings of Jesus. It's about the person of Jesus Christ. That is how we know love. We know God's character by his son, Jesus Christ. He is the one, he is God made flesh. And this is important to know too. We know what God is like by what Jesus did and said. That's how we know what God is like. That's how we know what the Holy Spirit is like, by how Jesus acted. They have the same character. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the beginning part, says Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. To look at Jesus is to know God. Remember, uh, I think it was Philip that said, oh, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. He's like, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? That's a pretty cool moment, by the way. It probably blew Philip's mind. He's like, wait, who am I talking to here? Is this my buddy Jesus or is this, yeah, pretty cool moment. So sometimes we can be afraid of God. And we're going to talk more about the fear of God in a minute here. But, you know, we're afraid, you know, to, to come to God directly and pray. We're afraid that if we pray, God is going gonna, is gonna to get us. Or we, we're afraid that the work of the Holy Spirit is going to be something weird and strange and crazy. And we're afraid that if someone lays hands on us to receive the Holy Spirit, that something weird might happen because, oh, I'm, I'm so afraid. Listen, do you know Jesus? Oh, yes, I like Jesus. Well, Jesus is, is just like God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. They share the same character. Jesus, the way he treated people, the way he loved on people, the way he lifted up the woman caught in adultery, the way he touched the leper, the way he rebuked the Pharisees and, and rebuked the people who were oppressing the people. That's who Jesus is. That's who God the Father is. That's who God the Holy Spirit is. So we don't want to divvy up the Godhead, right? We don't divide the Godhead in pieces and say that, you know, pit them against each other. I like this one, but not this one. You can't do that. But the good news is that they're all good. They're all like Jesus. But Jesus did not just come to give us an illustration of God's character. If he did, that's a really sick thing because he died on a cross. Remember that? So why did Jesus come? Not just so that we would know God, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. Why? To be the propitiation for our sins. So he's got those two things, to give us life and to give us forgiveness of sins. And he's saying, this is not because our love of God was so great that he responded to us. Right? That's, that's sort of the, the Greek idea, where if you demonstrate your love and your reverence for the gods, you might have a dream where Apollo will come and speak to you. Right? Where you've, you've got to offer up many sacrifices to get the gods' attention. And like, that's, what, that's how we got Jesus to come, was we showed God as, as a people by our love and commitment to him that we were ready to receive his son. That is not what happened. That is not what happened. In fact, God was like, you people are not ready for this, so I'm going to send John first to get you ready. I'm going to send John to call you all out, to bring to your mind the fact that you need forgiveness of sin, right? John brought the baptism of repentance, stirring up the conscience of the people. You guys are so focused on Rome, you're missing your heart. And then Jesus could come in. He had to get us ready. Well, then why would God take the initiative? Because he loves us. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us little application here. This is why we don't wait for people to do the right thing before we show them love. We take the initiative in showing love to people. We step out before they show us that they're ready for it. And this can be tough, especially guys, when you're related to this person. It's hard, especially if you've been really deeply hurt by somebody and it, you, you could be 100% in the right. They could have totally messed you up 
and like I didn't do anything wrong. Everybody around you agrees that you didn't do anything wrong. This person totally was wrong to you. You need to show love to them. I can't forgive them. Well, you better, because remember what Jesus said about that? However much you forgive others, that's how much God will forgive you. Yikes. Now, this is not to intimidate you, but it's to remind you, listen, God loved you so much that while you were in rebellion against him, he reached out and said, I'm going to save you anyway. God did not have to do that. It's not like God is like, oh, man, these people, now I have to save them. I have to die on a cross. No, God didn't have to do that. He loved the people he created. Any artistic people in here, creative type people? You ever get really attached to something that you create? Like something you write or you draw or film? I don't know. That's like a thing now. But, you know, after a while, like it's a, it's a strange thing. You care about it. And this can really, as far as artists go, it can get in the way because you get so attached to something that you've written or that you've drawn or whatever that when you've got to go in and make drastic changes, like, I can't do it because it's so good and I love it so much. Or you never want to show anybody because if they, if they see it and they don't like it, then it's not as good and it's broken your heart. So obviously there's some limits to the illustration. But that love that you have, for something that you've created is a very small sliver of what it's like for God and you. That because God is creative, he cares about the things that he created. Actually, we should put it backwards. Because God cares for the things he created, we as creative people care for the things that we create as well. Think of children. Most of you guys don't have kids in here. But when you have children, there's just something, it doesn't make sense why I should care. Like on, on just a very basic, you know, crude scientific level why should i care more about this four-year-old than this four-year-old they're the same thing right they're both have similar capacities and similar levels of skill why why should i love this one more than the other one there's just something about it being your kid am i right am i right vicky it's like yeah i don't care about any of these other kids i care about that one right there I care about you know these ones right here you know you know i have my four-year-old son I like hanging out with my four-year-old son. That doesn't make any sense. He can't offer anything to me, right? He doesn't bring anything to the conversation, right? He just asks the same things over and over again. I'm always having to get on him to get down from there or don't jump off of that or don't lick that thing, right? But because he's mine, I care about him. That's why God loves you. He, so when we sinned and put a gigantic obstacle between us and him, not God's fault, our fault, the Lord could have said, all right, well, that's it. That's it then. I guess I'm going to have to start over. No, the Lord said, I will go out of my way at great personal cost to restore that balance, to bring it back, to bridge the chasm, to open the door up again. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. We already discussed that in chapter 2, verse 2, remember? It said the same thing there. I'll just read it. It says, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Greek word is halasmas. And this is the covering for your sin, covering over it. The wrath of God that you deserved has been poured out on Jesus Christ so that you can be free to live in him, as it said in verse 9. Satisfied the wrath of God against your sins. There's a real push against that whole idea. Oh, so we're being saved from God? How is that good news? Well, it's good news because you don't have to endure the wrath of God, first of all. Second of all, it's good news because God took the penalty on himself. That's the whole gospel. Like, oh, so we have to run from God? No, God said, I'll take this on myself. It's a very poor understanding of the wrath of God and a very, unfortunately, high view of our own sin, that it's not that bad. God sees sin on a on a cosmic existential level. And he's like, this is wrong and should not be. I cannot allow it to continue. But because I love these people so much, I will take the penalty upon myself. I will delay judgment until I have time to reopen the door. And then I will delay it even longer to allow more people to put their faith in me and take advantage of it. So not only is God love, God has acted lovingly. And so you can't in the same way just say, oh yes, I love people too, and then not act lovingly to other people. We should be motivated to love just like God did. And that's what he gets into, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is John's conclusion of this little paragraph. If God was willing to do that for us, we should be able to, willing to do that for one another. It's God's character, God's actions that motivate us to love each other out of gratitude. Do you remember that story where Jesus was in the house of uh, the, uh, the Pharisee named Simon? And this woman came in and she, uh, she wept. And so, stories are different across the Gospels, but she poured the oil on his feet and was wiping it with her hair, right? And just broken down over Jesus. And Simon looks at this woman and he goes, if Jesus was really a prophet, he'd know who was touching and he'd send her packing, Right? And Jesus answered, and this is from Luke chapter 7. He said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? The one who owed 500 or the one who owed 50? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. And then skipping down a few verses, he says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Jesus ties love to the magnitude of what was forgiven. Right? And you might say, well, I haven't had that many sins. Maybe I got saved very early. Like, I haven't done anything terrible. Does that mean that I can't love God very much? Don't worry. You sit alone in the presence of God and you ask God to reveal to you the depth of your sin and what he actually saved you from, you'll get a, a real quick perspective of what the Lord did for you. The thing is, though, he says, he says this woman is forgiven much, loves much. She saw Jesus and encountered him. Simon encountered Jesus. John, the apostle, encountered Jesus. But none of us have seen him. This is why this, this sort of random phrase is in there. When he says, let us love one another, no one has ever seen God. It's like, okay, that's sort of, <laughs> it came out of nowhere. No, it didn't. No one has ever seen God. You can almost add the word but after that. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What's the point? This woman's encounter with Jesus changed her life and changed her heart to a, one of rebellion and sin to one of love for the Lord and for other people. So when you and I walk in love towards one another, he says, God abides in us. That word abide, remember, just means remain. God remains with us. And those around us encounter his love. You and I have never encountered Jesus on the road. And he's never done, you know, placed his hands on us and done a miracle for us or told us exactly what we needed to hear in the right moment that caused us to give our hearts to him no matter what. But when we encounter people who have been changed by the love of God and are acting like Jesus would act to us, then we encounter God. So we've never seen God, but we've seen people who are living as God would have them live. And John says, that's when the love of God is perfected in us. The word perfected can mean completion or matured. His love is completed. The plan of God's love is completed when you start bringing love to other people. When we are living out the love of God ourselves. I've said this before, but Jesus isn't around to give somebody a hug when they're having a rough time. But you are. And when you act towards somebody else, how Jesus would act if he was there, you are living out the love of God. And then you can see the same transformation that happened to this woman in the story can happen to somebody else through your life. So why should we love one another? Because God loved us. And it changed us. And when we love people with God's love, they are changed to love God and then start loving others. That's God's plan. That's the love of God coming to completion. This is what God wanted was to transform a few people's lives to then go out and take that same love to the world and transform more people's lives. You know, you, we're most of us pretty young in this room. We've got a long time to live if the Lord should tarry. You're going to encounter a lot of people in your life. Let me guys raise your hand. You maybe have never thought about this before, but you ever encountered somebody at the job or in your dorm or uh, just around somebody that you knew in school maybe? You were only knew them for a short time, 
But you look back and you can think, this is why God brought them into my life because of one encounter you had with them or something like that. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? I, I can think of a couple different people where I was working at this one job and this guy got saved, not through me, but he got saved. And he came in, hey, Tyler, you're a Christian, right? I'm like, yeah. So we started reading the Bible together and he would come in with Bible questions. It was the coolest thing. And then his girlfriend who had brought him to church where he had gotten saved, she wasn't living for the Lord. She was a total hypocrite. And he started realizing that. And he almost got sucked back into this stuff. But I remember there's this one night where he's like, Tyler, she wants to go to this party, and I know what's going to happen at this party. I can't go there. God doesn't want me to do that. Kind of that really brand-new believer-type language where there's no, like, veneer on it. Like, I know God doesn't want that. It's a bad place. I'm like, yeah, you can't go. And he broke up with her that night and said, I'm going to follow Jesus, and I'm not going to do this kind of stuff anymore. And shortly after that, he found a different job. But I know that that night was a tipping point for him. And the Lord brought me into his life or brought him into my life to get, for me to give him just that little nudge he needed to keep walking after Jesus. And I look back, I'm like, that is the coolest thing, how, how our lives intersect and the Lord uses them for that. This is what God wants your life to be. So don't be selfish when you come to church, man. There are people that need you. It's, it's the craziest thing to think that when I go up there and pray with people. If I pray for nine or ten people on a Sunday morning, it's like some of those people, just the little conversation I, I had or those prayers that I prayed for them, that could transform their life. I'll tell another story just because testimonies are awesome and it in, might encourage you. There's a woman that came up, young college student. I never, I saw her two times, exactly twice. Once, she came up for prayer. It was before Thanksgiving break and she was not crying, but she was very upset because she had gotten saved her parents were not, and uh, they had totally rejected, said that we don't want to hear about it. When you come back for Thanksgiving, I, we don't want to talk about your religion, okay? And she was, I, I think her dad was sick, I think is what it was. And she's like, my dad is sick. I don't know how much longer he has to live. I've got to tell them about Jesus, but they might get really upset and kick me out of the house. So I prayed with her. I encouraged her. I said, you've got to go home, and you've got to do this, because this is, this is too important to, to not take seriously. So... It was just a, like a three-minute encounter on a Sunday morning. And I thought of it and remembered it, but, you know, I talked to a lot of people. A few months later, like months, the next semester, she comes up smiling and beaming and grinning, and she comes up and says, I went home, and I was so scared, but I ended up talking to my family. Everyone in her family got saved. Her dad got better, and they're all walking with Jesus now. I've never seen her again. But just that one little moment of loving on her and giving her what she needed to hear in that moment, God used to change an entire family. And who knows what's going to happen from there. God can do that with your life. No one has ever seen God, but they can see you. And you know God. And God abides with you if you walk in his love. God abides in us. So he's going to pick up on that word abide as he moves into a new paragraph now. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So you see how John will do this. Like He'll have his main point, and then he'll say, God abides in us. And you know how we know that God abides in us? That's, that's how this letter is structured, which makes it a little difficult to outline, but it's okay. It's, it's pretty cool. So how can we know that God abides with us. He talked about this in chapter 3, verse 24, right? By this we know that he abides in us by the spirit who dwells with us. And he says the same thing here in verse 13 of chapter 4. We know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. The Holy Spirit is the seal and confirmation that we belong to God. He is the presence of God within you at all times. So, when we teach little kids, and this is not a bad thing, I'm teaching it to my kids too, that Jesus is going to come and live in your heart. Well, Jesus is not going to cut your heart open and climb inside and live there, right? But the Holy Spirit is going to come and indwell you, right? Jesus told the apostles at the Last Supper, he is with you and will be in you. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14 
in him, this is talking about Jesus, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, so when you became a Christian, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So salvation will be completed when you stand before God and he welcomes you into his presence, welcomes you into heaven, right? But how do we know that's going to happen? How do we know that we abide in God? By the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit seals us for salvation. He sanctifies us. He instructs us. He empowers us for living. And there's a bunch of different things we could talk about the Holy Spirit, but we're going to focus on the one that John is emphasizing here. So that kind of like asking, how do I know that God abides with me? Well, you have the Holy Spirit, which just leads us to the next question. Well, then how do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? A couple different answers to that. But the one he's going to move on to talk about is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, testifying of the Lord, that the Holy Spirit is the one who instructs us in salvation. And we talked about this a little bit last time as well, so we won't spend as much time on it. He ties the presence of the Holy Spirit to the confession of Jesus Christ as two different things in these verses, Savior of the world and the Son of God. So the work of Jesus and the nature of Jesus. You see how important it is to confess who Jesus Christ is in all of his work and his nature to salvation? It's all about Jesus, man. And that's what the Holy Spirit comes to do, is to testify about Jesus to you. Now, because of what we just learned, that knowing Christ leads to a transformation, right? This woman had an encounter with Jesus that changed her life. When you know about Jesus, it leads to transformational love in your life. This makes sense why we have to hold to the confession. Why is holding to the confession of faith important to the love of God? Because the more you know about Jesus and the more you hold and recognize about Christ, it galvanizes you to love God and to love people more. And I've seen this. When people start to slip on these key doctrinal issues, it starts to sap their love away, man. And I, I don't even have an explanation for it other than spiritual. But when somebody starts placing, and, and it can work this way, when they place love of people above the confession of faith, as strange as that sounds and as like appealing as that can be, then they, it saps their love away. Because then they start to say, well, if we really loved people, we wouldn't worry about all this doctrinal stuff. We'd just get out there and do it. But John is telling us right here, you can't separate those two things. Because the very thing that drives us to, to love other people is the love of Jesus. Does it really matter if Jesus was God or not? Yes, it does. Because that just increases the magnitude of what God did for us. It wasn't that Jesus was a nice person that taught us to do nice things. He was God in the flesh who set aside his privileges as the creator of the universe in order to die on a cross for you and for me, to secure salvation for us. And, and there's a bunch of other reasons why it's important, but this is the one that John is focusing on here. We abide in God because the Holy Spirit has brought us to a place of confession. How do I know that I have the Holy Spirit? Are you just convinced in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that he's the Savior of the universe, that he was the true Son of God? If you say yes, oh, but I have doubts. But are you pursuing God in spite of those doubts, trusting that the Lord will handle it later? That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. That's how you know that God's Spirit dwells within you. And that's how you know that God abides with you. And that then leads to a transformed heart of love. Verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love of God, or sorry, the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. It's kind of a summary statement here of everything he's just said so far. Affirming again the love that God has shown through the gospel, restating what he said before that we need to love the Lord. But I want to take a minute and slow down here because this phrase caught my eye as I was studying for this. We have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. It's not saying in this verse that we, have, we believe God. That's, of course, implied and taught elsewhere. But in this verse, we believe the love that God has for us. I want to take just a second here to slow down and ask this question. Do you believe the love of God? That's sort of a strange question, I know. But do you really believe that God loves you? 
That's such a huge thing. We've been learning that since we were little kids. Jesus loves you. But do you understand what that means? Do you recognize the gospel's implications, not just for the world, but for your heart and for your life? The fact that God loves you is such a big idea that you have probably accepted it without taking the time to let it hit you for all its meaning and worth. Right? When we learn big facts, we sort of just absorb them. We don't really worry about it too much. Right? The world is round. Okay? That's kind of a big thing. <laughs> that's a huge deal. Or when you find out how big the universe is, or when you learn something political that's gone down, that's huge and, you know, magnificent. And, you know, there was a, there was a rebellion in this part of the world, and they dethroned their king and established a new government. Right? Okay? That's a huge deal. Like people died and people fought for this and it was the most important thing in their life. Okay. But then it's something like, you know, Netflix changed the user interface. So now you have to sort it differently. Ah, that's too much. And it, it's, it's crazy, right? So we need to take the time and recognize that God loves you. God, I mean, you can kind of take this one word at a time, right? God and everything that that word means loves and everything that that word means you. And my favorite verse about God's love actually comes from the Old Testament. Zephaniah 3.17, where it says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Zephaniah 3.17. Get this picture of, Lord, of God like celebrating over you. You know yourself. You're not that great. <laughs> and this like, what does that say about me? It doesn't say anything about you. It says everything about God. It says that God loves you. Here's the deal. I am the kind of person who misses out on opportunities because of my own stubborn attitude. Like if I go somewhere and there's a preacher that gives a great message, I'm like, I want to go and, and say thank you and shake his hand and introduce myself. If I get up there and there's a long line of people, I'm like, nah, forget it. <laughs> I'm not just going to be another one of those guys in the line, right? Or I'll think to myself, oh, so you think you're something now? I'm gonna, you, you want me to line up and shake your hand? And, you know, it's really a shame because there have been many times where I really, really wanted to meet somebody. And uh, I let that get in the way and I didn't get to. And sometimes you do that and it's like, oh, yeah, it was just a moment and I was at the end of the line and they're tired and they want to be done. Okay. But sometimes you really get a chance to talk to somebody and meet somebody. Like if you ever go to a, to a concert and, you know, the band is out like signing stuff and I'm like, you know, really want to go over and say hello. If there's nobody there, I'll go. But I don't want to be the guy that's there with the crowd. Because I'm like, because then I'm just, I'm just another guy. There's nothing special about it. And it's, we run into the danger of doing that with God. God loves you. Yeah, God loves everybody. And we kind of get the idea that we're just another hand for Jesus to shake when he's coming down the line of his admirers, right? It's like, oh, yeah, it'd be great to meet the president, but he'd, like, shake my hand and then move on to the next guy for five seconds. And you know you don't really mean anything to him. Even if somebody is the greatest person in the world and they really are trying their best to make every moment count, you know you're just the next person. It's not like that with God. It's not like that with God. God loves you individually and specifically by name. God knows how many hairs are on your head. I don't even know how many hairs are on my head. God cares about you. This is something that really hit me a while ago, and I have to keep relearning. And all the little silly things that you're interested in, you don't have to tell us what it is, so don't worry. But how many of you guys ha are really interested in something that you would never tell anybody else about because it would just be too embarrassing for you? Like there's something that you're interested in or you'd like to know more about something or you'd like to go somewhere or do something, but you won't because you know that it's really kind of a lame thing to do and nobody else would be interested. God cares about that stuff. God cares about that. When my, my kids, and I use kids as, as an example a lot, but I talk to them a lot, so there you go. You know, when Micah's like drawing something or building something or playing some game, I'm like, hey, what, what are you doing, buddy? And he starts telling me. I sit and listen to him. Not because I'm like, oh, this, this will make his day. But I'm like, no, I want you to tell me because it tells me something about you and I love you that much. God's like, hey, I don't need, it just, this doesn't need to be some really uber formal relationship where all you ever do is come and bow and thank you and 
you know, give us, bless this day, O Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. God's like, I want to know you. <laughs> Jesus is the one that leaves the 99 to go after the one. And he would have gone after you if you were the one. Indeed, he has gone after you. Think back on your life and all the very specific ways that God has spoken to you and changed your life. Because God's looking out for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe the love of God, as John said? There's so many troubling questions that can really weigh on our heart. But they get answered when we just learn to accept the love of God for us. God loves you. He loves you. And we, we saw early in the book of 1 John that Jesus is our advocate, but Satan is the accuser. Don't let the accuser convince you that what the advocate has done was some cold, clinical, you know, let's see how many people I can save thing. No, you need to accept what the advocate says and learn to revel in and accept the love of God for you as a person, as an individual. You think of Jesus talking to the woman at the well, right? Talking to her about her life because he cared about her. You know, the apostles who, who described this relationship they had with Jesus, like, I'm the apostle that Jesus loved, man. It made such an impression on them. That's how God thinks about you. Accept the love of God for you. It's different than loving yourself. Accept yourself. Love yourself. It's, okay, that's weird. I know myself, and I got a lot of work to do. But you learn to accept the love of God for you. That's different. That'll change your entire world, man. That'll turn everything upside down when you realize that God loves you just the way you are. It sounds like it's so simple, right? So basic. God loves you just the way you are. Come as you are. Yeah, okay. I know. I, I'm, a, I'm a mature believer now, so I know that there's way more to the picture than that. Well, yes and no. God, God loves you just the way you are. He doesn't want to leave you just the way you are. It's because he cares about you. Loving somebody is not, you know... <laughs> It's like you think of some like f movie where there's like a hobo that somebody learns to appreciate and love for who they really are and realize there's something they, they know things, too, and they're a real person. Yeah, that's great. But if you really cared about them, you wouldn't let them live like a hobo. If you really cared, you'd be like, hey, let's let's get out of this together. Let me help you out. Well, I don't want to change them. They need changing. <laughs> Everybody needs changing. You accept and love somebody at that starting point, but you say, hey, let's go past that together. That's what Jesus did with you. He came to you. He was willing to work at your pace. He's not going to say either you, this is your deadline. Either you make that deadline or that's it. God's like, let's go together. Let's walk through this together. He sent you his Holy Spirit to live in your heart so that day by day you can be with the Lord. So believe the love of God. Don't just know it. It's important to know it. You got to know it, but believe it for yourself. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So now we've realized so far that God is love the gospel was the supreme demonstration of his love. Now he's going to return back to you. How does this change our lives? Well, he's talking about how love drives out fear in our hearts. It's another one of these timeless passages in the book of 1 John, right? There's so many of these like memory verse type passages in, in this book. And this is another one. He's talking about not being afraid on the day of judgment. He's already talked about this actually. Chapter 2, verse 28 he said, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. We've already talked about that. That passage was focusing on obedience. That's important. He's like, guys, live your life so that when the trumpet sounds, you're ready to roll. You're not like, ah, sweep it under the rug, right? Now he's focusing on how it's God's love that gives us confidence. And he has this fascinating phrase here. He says, as he is, so also are we in this world which means that God is going to treat you on judgment day like he would treat Jesus. That's unbelievable. Like I said, I think that we, 
we need to work on our appreciation of the doctrine of glorification. Because that it's so unbelievably awesome that we can't really wrap our heads around it. But this is going back to the idea of propitiation. God treated Jesus like you deserved so that he could treat you like Jesus deserves. This is why the Bible talks about being in Christ or with Christ. That you are, have been brought in to that same relationship that Jesus has with his father, right? Jesus is the only begotten son of the father. We are the adopted children of God, okay? Ephesians chapter two. If you ever want to look for a really great poetic description of salvation, you just read the first three chapters of Ephesians. It's all great. Ephesians two verses four through seven. Think of how many times he uses the phrase in Christ or with Christ or in him or with him as we go through this. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is like it's a refrain over and over again. In Christ. With Christ. In him. With him. That is salvation. Being accepted by God because you are in Christ. That's why he says there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Why? Because what do you have? What does Jesus have to fear on judgment day? <laughs> Nothing. Jesus is going to be the one that sits in judgment on that day. So what do we have to fear on judgment day? You have as much to fear on the day of judgment as Jesus does. Let that thought sink into your head. You have to be afraid of as much as Jesus Christ on that final day. That's why there's no fear in love. Because the love of God has brought us into the person of Christ. We talked about that a few weeks ago, so I, I won't dive into that all again, but I love talking about it. Because he's, he's saying fear has to do with punishment. And I'm going to go off a little bit here because this is important to recognize. The Bible says over and over again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is a good thing, okay? Remember the thief hanging on the cross when the other thief is mocking Jesus, and he goes, do you not fear God? That like, you're about to die, and here's a righteous man being unjustly punished, and you're mocking him. Are you not even a little bit afraid of what's going to happen in about 10 minutes? That's the fear of God. The idea that God can snuff you out of existence. That's important to fear God. But the fear of the Lord is the what of wisdom? The beginning of wisdom. And I, you might have to add a thousand qualifiers to this statement, but I'm going to say it anyway. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The love of God is the end of wisdom. That's where God wants to bring us. That's how the Old Testament and New Testament work, right? Progressive revelation begins with the fear of God and leads us to the love of God. And this is not to say that in the fear, when we fear God, we don't love God, or to say that if we love God, we should not fear God. There is a sense where that is true, but the Bible speaks, when it's talking about one topic, if there are two opposing topics, the Bible is going to talk about the one 100% at any given time. So when he's talking about here, he's saying we're not afraid of God in the sense that when we stand before God, that's the end. He's saying that if you are afraid of the judgment of God, the love of God is still being perfected in you. You're not there yet. Because if, you, if you're still scared that when you die, you're going to stand before Jesus, he's saying you have not fully grasped the love of God. It hasn't reached its purpose in you yet. Fearless living is what God has for us. That's why, by the way, there's so much more to prayer and worship than confession and weeping. Sometimes we feel like the only time we can really pray is when we're saying we're sorry for something. Like our, our deepest moments with God have been moments where we're weeping and broken in the presence of Jesus. That's good. But then we start to think, oh, that's really what we need. So what can I be sad about today? Because I really want to cry in the presence of God again. Those moments are great. But for every deep moment, every serious, sad, sorrowful moment we have with the Lord, there should be an equally joyful, exuberant, celebratory moment with the Lord too. As a worship leader, this is tough. 
because it's very easy just to play all the slow songs with the big, long, emotional bridges because people respond to those. You don't have to teach people to respond to that, right? When you're singing about the love of Jesus, people break down and cry, and they'll go on their knees and the hands lifted high, and that's what you want. That's a good thing. It's much tougher to play something really exciting and happy and fast and loud and get people to respond the same way. And it's strange. I don't know why we're like that. I don't really have a good answer for it. But I know that we should respond equally joyful and equally sorrowful at, at any given moment. You always want to bring it back up, right? As a worship leader, I always teach our guys this. Like, if you're going to have a really dark, not dark is the wrong word, but a really uh, low moment, so to speak, really quiet, soft, emotional moment, I said you always got to bring it back up. That's how all the Psalms are written, right? Psalm 51, Lord, forgive me, I have sinned, right? Don't blot, no, don't blot my name out of your book. Don't take your spirit from me. He brings it up at the end and says, but I know that you're, the sacrifices you accept are a contrite heart, so I believe that you will forgive me. Psalm 22, I am a worm. Yeah, you think the songs we sing now are rough. I am a wor- worm and not of a man. My God, why have you forsaken me? But then at the end, he brings it back, says, I will trust in God. So you always bring it back up. So when you're having a sad sorrowful, repentant moment with God, okay, great, but end it with rejoicing and celebration. It's not like, okay, you repented, now I better not see a smile on your face for at least four hours. (laughs) That's not how God works. Even David, we talked about this last week, I think, even David, when he had sinned with Bathsheba, the most colossal sin that you could think of, worse than anything any of you have ever done, murdered a guy, committed adultery, lied, covered it up, involved his army in it, all that stuff, and got away with it. Nathan shows up and says, David, you have sinned before the Lord. David goes, you're right, I have sinned. God, forgive me. Nathan goes, well, it's not that easy, David. You've done a lot of, no, what does he say? The Lord has forgiven your sin. That quick. Like, what? That easy? You gotta be kidding me. Yeah, that's how it takes. That's all it takes. The Lord doesn't want you to spend forever wallowing in the depths of your sin when Jesus already died on the cross for it. Romans 7, right, says, it is no longer I who sin, but sin that dwells in me. That's like a bold thing to say. That's almost a scary thing to say. Like, oh, that, but if I start saying that, then I'll start thinking I can do whatever I want. No, you won't. (laughs) No, you won't. When you start walking, that's victory, man. When sin no longer has the ability to drive you out of service to the Lord or drive you out of fellowship with God. The moment you recognize a mistake, you get it right that second. That's the love of God. Because you're not afraid of God anymore. You're not afraid of retribution from on high because Jesus already took that for you. That's the love of God being perfected in you. You know what you think of in those moments? You think of Matthew 25, 34. When the king will say to those on his right, when you stand before God, what is he going to say? He's going to say, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Did you ever consider this inherit the kingdom? This is like described like a coronation. Your kingdom has come. God, you can't crown me. I'm a sinner. God's like, hey, I'm God and I love you. I'm going to do what I want. Well, if I say that, then I'll start I'll start thinking that I can do whatever I want and that, uh, that I'm better than God. No, you won't. That's the, that's, the ad, that's the accuser. That's not the advocate. You ought to be so saturated in the love of God that when you die, you do so with joy and you're looking forward to the day of judgment, right? Amos writes in, in his book, he says, why are you looking forward to the day of the Lord? <laughs> that it's a day of judgment, it's a day of darkness. We can look forward to the day of the Lord because for us, it is the day of our vindication and glorification. That's what the love of God does. It's awesome. I was preaching a little bit there. (laughs) Went off script some. That's okay. Verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Another memory verse. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So it's coming back to his main point, right? This verse kind of summarizes this whole, this whole section. Verse 19, 
Like from verse 7 through verse 21, verse 19 is like your thesis statement. We love because he first loved us. The love we should have for one another. These are all repetitions of things he said before. But they obviously bear repeating because he repeated it. Many times, actually. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 18. We're going to end with this story here. Bring it to a conclusion. Matthew 18. It's really nice to talk about the love of God sometimes. Not coming in going, Lord, I've got something really hard to say. Please give me the ability to say it with grace. Like, no, I just get to go in there and talk up the love of God. Awesome stuff. Matthew 18. Starting verse 23 to the end of the chapter. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. A talent was a unit of money worth a little over $1,000. He owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him. hundred denarii. Denarius was a day's wage. Okay? Day's wage. Talent, more than a thousand dollars. Denarius, how much do you make a day? How much do you make hourly? Multiply that by eight. It's a day's wage. And he owed him a hundred of those. A lot of money. Nothing like what this guy was just paid for. You know, this guy is settling a, like, a, like a poker night debt. He just got his student loans forgiven, right? But he saw him and he choked him and said, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Sound familiar? But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. Here's the thing. This guy was within his rights to have this man be sent to prison to pay the debt. He didn't do anything that was illegal. But he did something that was ungrateful and immoral. So he says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What's the point here? What kind of hypocrite was this guy? The worst kind of hypocrite. He was forgiven everything and then this other guy owed him, but owed him less. And he's like, yeah, but you're going to pay up, pal. And this guy might have thought to himself, my master showed me mercy. That was, it was within his rights to do so. But I'm well within my rights to force this person to pay up. And then we go, God loved me. He didn't have to, but he did. I don't have to love this person, so I'm not going to. John is writing, listen, we love because God loved us. We forgive because God forgave us. You know, one of the funny is maybe the wrong word, but like ironic things is the people who preach tolerance and acceptance the most are the angriest people you'll ever meet in your life. And if you don't show as much tolerance or love as they do, they will be in your face screaming and yelling and setting things on fire. Isn't that ironic? It's hypocrisy. And this is what John's talking about. He's saying, if you've received the love of God and you hate other people, no, 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 no. He says, it doesn't work. You don't know God if that's the case. But the good thing is, we have received the love of God. So just go live out what God's done for you. You're, the natural bent of your heart should be to show love to those around you. You also have to be, to be wise. doesn't mean we let ourselves get taken advantage of, but that's not what we're talking about today. 
You live in love towards other people with the same kind of love that God gave you. And I would be remiss if I finished talking about the love of God from 1 John without going here. And I've been saving it for the end. 1 Corinthians 13, starting at verse 4. What kind of love are we talking about? This kind of love. This is the kind of love that God showed you and the same kind of love that you ought to show to others. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love.